We're going to read the word of God. And it's found in Genesis chapter 24. I'm going to start in verse 54 and go to the end of the chapter. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I might go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lai Hiroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Sword of God, you may be seated. My wife's parents are here with us today, Wayne and Bev Nelk. Thank you guys so much for being here. My wife, Rebecca, you notice her spelling of her name is a little different than others because they went by the biblical spelling here in uh, Genesis. Um, I do want to say, too, about uh, my father-in-law, Wayne, since it is Father's Day and I'm the pastor and I have the mic and I get to say things, <laughs> is that uh, I really admire him. He's a man who prays for his family, and that is seen in all of their lives and our lives. Um, we are on this series called The Patriarchs. Patriarch means rule of fathers, and they are the founding fathers of the Jewish people, but also the founding fathers of our faith as well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. I say last season because it's kind of like a multi-series uh, um, TV show, but last season was Abraham. Abraham kind of went on for quite a while because Abraham's life has so many events. Um, Isaac, however, it's more like we are subletting this out to the BBC. It's like, you know, just a few episodes. Um, not a lot happened in Isaac's life. For the most part, Isaac lived a quiet life, minding his own business, working with his hands. For Isaac, we actually start even back before we were finished with Abraham to the point where he gets married. Unlike his father or his son, Isaac only has one wife and one lover, and it's the same person. He lives a life in some ways more blessed than them as well. He lived a quiet life of sincere faithfulness. In the story of Isaac and Rebekah, we see the marriage, marriage institution and the marriage customs of that day. And we then, as New Testament believers, we see more clearly the metaphor, the illustration of the bride and the bridegroom. 
Jesus Christ will use this illustration many times, but throughout the Old Testament as well, that God is the bridegroom, he is the groom, and his people are the bride collectively. All believers throughout time, from Adam to the last person who will be born on this earth, all who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether in ignorance in his time or in knowing in ours, are part of the bride of Christ. And the love of the bridegroom comforts, moves, and changes the bride. So as we see this, being, this is illustrative of the love that God has for us as the bridegroom. With the unnamed servant, we see an illustration of the Holy Spirit, who is sent by the Father on behalf of the Son in order to get a bride for the Son. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. He goes by way of the Son, and he is gathering a bride amongst all who would believe on this earth. He is the one who carries the bride price and the instructions on behalf of the betrothed. The love of God in Christ by way of the Spirit initiates our love for him. We love because he first loved us. It transforms. It remakes. In fact, when Jesus is talking to this Pharisee named Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And now we're kind of used to that phraseology, you know, born again Christian. But Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about, dude? How can I be born again? I was born once, pretty successfully. This is my paraphrase. Anyway, and Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, spiritually. Spiritually, you need to be born again. That is what the love of the the bridegroom does for the bride. It remakes her. The illustration of marriage in the scripture, the illustration of marriage is used quite often. We see this for all who have believed on the Lord um, are the bride of Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 9, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine living, linen, bright and, pur- and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is the Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And here, here's what brings into clarity for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul here is quoting from the Old Testament, from Genesis For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Paul says, here's the reason, verse 32. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So today, as I use this as an illustration of Christ and the church, I'm not making this up. This is what the New Testament tells us to see Christ and the church as, as a bride and a bridegroom. As we look at Isaac and Rebecca, we can see what the love of the bridegroom does for the bride. And in a greater sense, both Rebecca and Isaac are part of the bride of Christ themselves. The portion of chapter 24, Becca didn't read this morning. And by the way, chapter 24 is very long. I had mercy on everybody. It's not going to be a two, three hour sermon. We're going to we're sort of skip. We're going to go over actually right now in verse uh, 29 of chapter uh, 24 of Genesis. I should move over there. <coughs> In verse uh, 29 through 32, we have, uh, we, have, um, we have the unnamed servant meeting the in-laws, the future in-laws of Isaac. Isaac never gets to meet his in-laws. 
You know, I don't know about you, those of you who are married, what was your first meeting with your in-laws like? Most of the time, it's somewhat awkward. Um, now, for me, it was awkward, but like because of my awkwardness, my in-laws are awesome, and they were so hospitable. I wasn't even dating Becca at the time, and it was like us and a few friends. We went over to their house, and um, we actually spent the entire night talking, like no sleep, and decided to drive the, on the way back because... Well, we were stupid college students, what can I say? Um, not saying every college student is stupid, but we were. Um, maybe you're really wise and bright, but we, we were not. We drove. I remember like seeing spots in my vision as I'm driving down the road. Um, if you've been there, say amen. I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> um, and um, I remember I called them sir and ma'am because I, I, always, I always try to be as respectful as I can. But it's kind of weird, right? Um, in our times, sir and ma'am, and things like that. But how would you like to meet the in-laws of somebody else who's getting married and try to convince them to let their daughter go away with you to be married to somebody they never met? That's what the unnamed, that's what the unnamed servant had to do. In verses 29 through 32, he meets Rebecca's brother. It's a familiar name, Laban. Every time I read this, and I've read it a few times, and I'm sure all of you have too, I'm like, what's Laban doing here? I remember him. And a few chapters later here, he's the guy who, um, when he finds out that Isaac's son, Jacob, is really interested in his daughter, decides to leverage that as 14 years of what in their time would be slavery. That's Laban. I, I, Laban is such a character in the Bible. And in verses 29 through 32, I'm just going to read 29 here. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring Verse 30, and as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. Um, he went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? You catch that? He waited till he saw the money. And then he's like, now it's time to be polite and nice. Laban's such a character because he reminds me of, and sorry for the cultural reference here, but episode one of Star Wars, Watto. You know, he's like, he's like, don't be telling me about the, what God wants you to do. Um, those tricks don't work on me, only money. That's Laban right here. You know what's interesting about Laban? You look at Laban and Rebecca, they're siblings. They were born in the same place. They were, they were raised with the same parents yet they're two very different people. See, I, I don't care what your excuses are for your behavior. You're responsible for what you do. And you can't be like, oh, I was raised like that because Laban was raised the same way Rebecca was raised. And Rebecca, before she saw any kind of money or anything like that, she serves this stranger by giving him water. And then she waters his camel. Last week we talked about these 10 camels. It could be as much as 200 gallons of water. And I asked the first Snell girls last week, I was like, would you want to do that? They're like, no, I wouldn't want to do it either. That's the kind of, that's the kind of, like, that's the kind of honor that Rebecca had in her heart that Laban, unfortunately, does not have because he wants to see the color of his gold before he's willing to treat him nice. In verses 33 through 48, the servant, he, uh, he is invited to a meal. He's going to tell them, basically, how would you like this? You're going to go to some people you don't know, and you're going to tell them, I want to convince you to get your, have your daughter marry this guy I know. I wouldn't want to do that. 
But he's so committed to, he's so committed to the calling he has on his life. He's like, okay, before we eat anything, I got to tell you what's going on. This is why this sermon could be like several hours because he recaps everything that happened up to that point. And the reason for that is so that we know the honor of this man is that he's not holding anything back. He tells them so bluntly about what God had orchestrated all of this, that God had sent his, his spirit, he had sent it, sorry, his angel out ahead of him according to the prayer of his master Abraham. And now God had shown favor to Abraham. And then he ends it with basically saying, so what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to be a big jerk and stab your uh, relative in the back? Or are you going to do what God wants you to do? Now, I think the words he actually uses are much harsher than that. And they, they understand, they're like, no, we see this is of God. And whether we agree with it or not, we're not going to stand in the way of what God wants. The servant's mission, the next section, the servant doesn't want to give himself even a moment's rest. He's concerned for the mission he's on. He's on a mission from God, also for his master. And he sees the hand of God at work. You see the concern he has for himself is very, almost nothing but his concern for his master and for his master's God is everything to him. The family response, the family response is very interesting. Verses uh, 49 here. I'm just going to go to it and read it for you. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, like I said before, some weapons grade manipulation right here. If you're going to show, so if you're a good person, if you're going to show steadfast love, he says to my master, but that's their relative, by the way, family's everything back then. I mean, it really was everything. It was your very life sometimes. Um, so he says, verse 49, um, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may return to the right hand or to the left. Ooh, what can they say to this? Verse 50, Then Laban and Bethiel, Bethiel is the mother of Rebekah, answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of the master's son as the Lord had spoken. I don't know much about Bethel or really even about Laban other than what he's done. Um, but I can tell you this. They can see the hand of God in this. And that's the thing. Once you see the hand of God in something, you only have two, you only have two options. You can submit and be a part or you can get trampled over because God gets his way. That's one of the things this pagan king in the Old Testament named Nebuchadnezzar found out the hard way. When he looked at the majesty of Babylon, in fact, we call it one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging towers of Babylon. He's like, look at what I've done. And God strikes him with insanity. He wanders around naked eating grass. Actually, there's a seven-year period, and this was a seven-year period. There's a seven-year gap in the Babylonian records. And if I was them, I would make a gap there too. I mean, I wonder what it's like, you know, Queen of Sheba comes or whoever might be the ruler of Sheba at the time. And you're like, uh, so the guy wandering around eating grass and mooing, that's our king. When he comes back to his senses, he has this incredible epiphany. He says, God, God does what he wants and nobody can say, what have you done? Um, can you, um, yeah, so... Um, Going back here, once you understand, you can either decide to be on God's side or, or try to oppose it. They decide they want to be on God's side. Um, the servant's response in 52, you know what his response to this? He worships. I wonder where he learned that. 
That when something good happens in your life, you worship. He learned it from Abraham. Because Abraham, every time there was a victory, he would make an altar, he would sacrifice to the Lord, and he would worship. You know, physical children are important. The most important job in society is mothers and fathers. The most important job in the cosmos is spiritual mothers and fathers, discipling others in the most holy faith. Isn't it amazing when you see this guy? If he's Eleazar, he was supposed to be the heir of Abraham. You know what his response is when he gets supplanted by Isaac? He rejoices because he realizes it's not about me, it's about my master and about my master's God. So he has told them they have responded well. Um, maybe, when we saw how his, maybe when he saw how his master responded, he started doing this himself, but he rejoices, he praises God, he worships God. And from here we switch to the bridegroom and the bride. And we look at the bride, we look at Rebecca, and she's very much like Abraham in that she leaves her kindred, she leaves her home, and she goes to a land that would be shown her on the condition of a promise. And when we look at this, we understand that not only she has she never met, she's never saw, she knows nothing about the bridegroom. His love has been sent by this servant, but she is trusting in this love. So how can you love somebody you haven't seen? That's a question a friend of mine once asked on Facebook. I shouldn't have been, probably not so much a friend because he unfriended me after this, but um, he had asked the question, how can you love somebody you haven't seen, someone you haven't seen? And the deal was is that he had been a church-going person, and he was in the middle of, I guess we'd call it today, um, deconstructing, or apostasy would be the real term for it. It's really just throwing away your faith because you found something you really wanted better than Jesus, which is showing that you never really was his in the first place. And uh, so he was going through this. And um, so I responded back. And I always regret, by the way, I always regret when I respond back on, on social media, right? So I'm like, I thought it was a genuine question. So I go throughout all of the ages, different philosophers. I talk about Helen of Troy, how she launched a thousand ships, and these men who never saw her were willing to die for her. And I, and I go through all these things. I go Plato's Republic, and about how really the only things we truly love are metaphysical things that we can't see, and we love them the greatest. And I go through all these things, and his response was he unfriended me. <laughs> because he didn't want an answer. And when we're bitter and angry, when we want something more than we want the Lord, we don't want an answer. We just want people to confirm us in our bitterness. Can you love somebody you haven't seen? Here's another proof. Rebecca has never seen Isaac. And she loves him and he loves her. Because love starts with the decision and the feeling. The decision, the will is the engine and the feelings are the caboose. The will is the engine, the feelings are the caboose because you will not always have the feelings. But when your will is behind that, when your will is in line with the Lord, that's what we see in this chapter right here. She leaves on a 900 mile journey. She will not see her family again, but she is believing in the promise. And what we see in here, the love of the bridegroom, one, it moves the bride. It changes the bride, number two. And three, it comforts the bride. Verses 54 and 59, this is what we read today. It moves the bride, and she's physically moving from one location to another, but it does more than that. It changes her affections, too. She becomes somebody vastly new, but that's really in the second point, um, second point about how it changes the bride as well. You know, everyone talks a good game about the things that, they, that are supposedly important to them, 
You know, we have our list and we know the right words to say in church. God, family, church, uh, friends, work, hobbies, and we got our little lists. What do you spend your most time in? No, but here's a better question. I used to say that a lot. I had people write down, you write down 24 hours, you sign every hour to, to an activity in your life, and I say, pick your top three. Those are your priorities. Here's the thing, really, when I thought about this. What are you willing to sacrifice for what? Because I have known people, and it's broken my heart, who sacrifice their God, their job, their church, their family, for a hobby. What are you willing to sacrifice what to? You know what Jesus said? He said, if you, he said, if you do not hate, and it's in relation to the love you should have for Jesus Christ and for God the Father, if you do not hate your family on account of me, you're not worthy of me. Once again, it's in relation to. It moves the bride. In verse 54, he stays one night. This is a, if you tally up the miles that you, that on this journey, it's 900 miles on foot or by camel. I don't know much about camel, but everybody keeps talking about how stubborn and terrible they are and how they like to bite and spit at you. They don't sound very nice. 900 miles, him and his fellows have gone on this trip to find this wife for Isaac. And he is so excited. I mean, like in verse, uh, in verse uh, 54 here, and he said, and, and he and his men, who were with him, ate and drank, and they spent the night. Um, when they rose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. He doesn't want to wait. Wow, if we could be on our master's business like that, right? I don't want to wait. My master's son needs a, needs a wife. I need to be getting on. I need to get on with this. In verse 55, we see the brother and the mother, they're not, they don't want to just let, let her go. In verse 55, and the brother and the mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Verse 56, but he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go back to my master. Spurgeon said of this in verse 55, speaking of Laban who wanted to keep Rebecca 10 for 10 extra days. Spurgeon, see Spurgeon, the pastor, um, he's called the Prince of Pre Preachers. He does not think he had honorable, like he just wanted to be around his sister for 10 days. This is what Spurgeon says. Speaking of Laban, he thought perhaps that there were more golden bracelets to be had, that he, that he was parting with his sister rather too cheaply, that he must not let the, prince, the priceless gem go out of his hands too soon. You know, Watto, am I right? Um, verse 56, um, uh, speaking of them wanting them to stay for 10 extra days in verse 66, but he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. In verse uh, 61 and 62 of Luke chapter nine, certain disciples are falling, falling away from Jesus Christ. They said, I want to follow you, but I got to do this first. And it was just an excuse not to follow. Let me read it for you. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Does that sound familiar, like what we just read? Let me first say this. Here, here's the thing that the world knows. Here's the thing that our enemies know. If they can delay faithfulness, they can delay it one more day and another day and another day. And before long, that dream that God had given you that you were supposed to be obedient in is just a far distant memory and it's just one day at a time or in this thing, 10 days at a time. 
Donald Barnhouse said, if the world does not succeed in persuading the believer to abide in the world, it will seek to delay his exit. When you decide to go with the Lord, the world will applaud your devotion, but will say, don't rush. Abide a few days, at least 10, and then go. In the book of, in the book of um, Kings, there is a, um, a prophet who goes to tell a prophecy to the, king of, to the king of Israel. And he's told by the Lord, don't stop, just go back home. Just go back home. And while he's going on his way, another prophet, a man who had, was in complete disobedience, he waylays him and he tells him, he lies to him about a prophecy he has. And because he delays him, this man is eaten by a lion on his way home. And if you're interested about hearing more about that, you can find my sermon, Leaders, Liars, and Lions. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And this man, this servant, he is not about disobedience or partial obedience. He knows this is the time. This is the time we need to get out of here. Verses 57, 58, they said, let, let us call the young woman and ask her, And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with the man? She said, I will go. So we get to the bride. What moves the bride? The love of the bridegroom. The bride's response. In the bride's response to the question, will you go with him? We see salvation itself illustrated. The Holy Spirit has convicted you of guilt. You know that you are a sinner, but he's also extended the love and the proposal of Jesus Christ to be part of the bride of Christ, to repent and believe in him alone for salvation. And your own, sin, and your own sinful nature says to this, will you go? Will you leave what's comfortable? Will you leave the sin you once loved and to go to this place that you don't know where it will lead? That's what our sinful nature does, tries to pull us back. um, uh, Barnhouse's quote right there, to delay our exit, meaning to delay our exit from leaving the things we once loved to go after the one we love supreme, Jesus Christ. Will you go? And what is her response? I will go. I will go. That is a great illustration of what happens to every person who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They said, I will go. I will leave. I will leave this world. I will leave sin. And I will go after the Lord, looking for a city who the author and builder is the Lord. Verse 59, um, she says to them that she will go. And they said, and they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and his men, The world cannot hold on to you if you don't want them to. No more argument. They send her and her nurse away. The world cannot hold on to you either if you don't want it to. Now the world will have its arms open wide for you to come back. And the Israelites, they understood that the best when they were wandering in the desert because they kept saying, can't we just go back to Egypt, the land of slavery? Remember in Egypt, we got to eat fish anytime we wanted. And in Egypt, it was great. And Moses is like, yeah, fish and blood. Every time they smacked your mouth because you looked at them the wrong way. You didn't have freedom. You couldn't serve the Lord. And they had this great perplexing thing of saying, okay, we keep wanting to go back. But here's the thing. The world can't hold on to you unless you want them to. And we have all the excuses in the world when we want to start living like the world again. And we'll say we don't have a choice. We say we don't have a choice when we've already made our choice and we want to comfort ourselves with that choice. 
It can't hold on to you if you don't want to. You are the free man or free woman of God. And Rebecca, when she decided she was going to go, they couldn't hold on to her either. They knew this was of God and they must let her go. It changes the bride. Verses 60 and 61. And they, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. This changes the bride. I just want to make something, just really want to say something real quick here. They didn't realize how prophetic their blessing was. It was just a common blessing at the time. To possess the gates of your enemy means you control the enemy. You control the gates. So they can't really do much because you control the gates. Um, They can't get in or out. You control them. Here's why this is prophetic. Because way back in Genesis, when God was making his proclamations to Adam, Eve, and the serpent, he said to the serpent, I'll make an enemy of you. I'll make an enemy for you out of the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. May your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. We can go, we can go forward to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says that all enemies will be put under his feet, and the last enemy to be defeated was, is death of sin. It's a defeated power. The world can't hold on to you because you are the free person of God. And, and, the, and, the, and the one, the offspring of Rebekah, he does hold the gates of those who hate him. Verses 60 and 61, it changes the bride. Now, marriage changes things, especially for the bride. In our culture, the bride's name changes for some people, for most people. The bride names change. And then you're trying to find them on Facebook and it's hard to find them because you're like, who did they marry again? What was that last name? I think it was fun, um, kind of an aside, but my sister, uh, Brittany, Brittany Fisher, that's my last name, she married a man named Gill. So it's Brittany Gill, and you know, her last name's Fisher Gill. It's like, that's, that's perfect, Brittany, good job. <laughs> Marriage changes things. Before a maiden and a bachelor become husband, when they become married, they become husband and wife. Physically, so many things change. And if the Lord sees fit, they become a mother and father. In verse 60, they bless her. They choose to bless her, even though they probably wanted her around a lot longer. You know, today, when somebody gets married, um, they can pretty much keep in contact with their family. In fact, my mother and father-in-law are here today. You can travel, you have Zoom, you have so many ways of keeping in contact. Back then, this was probably the last time they saw her. In fact, the biblical account, I don't believe, actually has a re- them reuniting at all. Her son, the, the nephew, grandson, he comes back, but she doesn't. We have the phrase, you know, you haven't lost a daughter, you've gained a son. They were losing a daughter, and they choose to bless her on her way. And as they bless her, they recognize the change that should happen to her. Oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. They'd heard the prophecy about Abraham. That he would be, that he, God would make him into a nation, and that through that nation, all nations on earth would be blessed. They hear this and they pray this, they bless this over her, that she's part of this promise. You know what's crazy too? So you're reading this and you're hearing me preach, maybe you're like, what does this have to deal with me? You're part of that promise too. You're like, well, I'm not Jewish, Pastor Jason. That's okay. For you're all sons of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus, the book of Galatians. She was on her way. There's a new relationship here. In marriage, we see a change in all, t- in all relationships around them. Before marriage, 
You're under your father and mother in some way, shape, or form. After marriage, you have started a new family. The nature of those relationships, they change, though those relationships still remain. You still have the command to honor your father and mother. Adult, Adult children of parents, you still have the command to honor your father and mother. Some of, that, some of us, that's pretty difficult. Some of us, it's pretty easy. But all of us still have this command, and we have to find ways of honoring, not always criticizing, judging. That's probably one of the things our culture really messes up and puts a burden on children, and especially adult children. You're not your parents' judge. You can just love them and honor them. New relationship. It's the same way as we can our relationship with Christ, in that Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride, and now we have a new relationship to sin. And if you don't have a new relationship with sin, you do not have a new relationship with Christ. I think, unfortunately, in our, in our fervor to just get people in the door, we made salvation just basically like sign on the dotted line, you're saved, instead of you are changing your whole life, you're becoming a new person, and now you have a new relationship with everything, including the sin you once loved, to love the righteous one you once ignored. Before we knew Christ, we were slaves to sin. Under its oppression, but under Christ, we have freedom. Simply put, if you do not have a new relationship with sin, you do not have a new relationship with Christ. As Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In verse 61, she leaves home. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. All I really want to say here is how she mirrors Abraham. How we see the faith of Rebekah in here. Is that she leaves her kindred and her homeland to go to the place that God would show her. To go to the place that this servant would show her according to the promise of God. As we go into 62 through 67, we switch gears and we switch people because the bridegroom comforts the bride as well. Once the telling of this event changes to Isaac, it stays on Isaac. Isaac is the bridegroom, but he is also part of the bride of Christ. We see how God is doing many things here. It's not only that he is finding a bride for Isaac. It's not only that he's fulfilling the promise but he's also comforting a son who's lost his mother. And we wouldn't know this except for the very last verse of this chapter, in chapter verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent to Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Here's the amazing thing. God is concerned about all the cosmos, all of salvation history, all the things that happen in the scripture, and he cares about what you're going through right now. He does. See, there's a greater thing that's going on here, that God is fulfilling his promise, that Isaac needs a wife so he can have legitimate children to carry on the family line, and that through generation after generation, Jesus Christ is born to redeem all of us from our sin. And also, God is setting up events to comfort somebody who's in mourning. That's one of the things our bridegroom does for us. He comforts us. In verses 62 and 63, now Isaac has returned from Bir Lahai Roy. Man, that's difficult to pronounce. Good thing you read it before. And was dwelling in Nagab. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. 
Wait and meditate. Isaac is still in mourning and grieving over the loss of his mother, Sarah. We won't know that until verse 67, but we do know it, so we should acknowledge it here as well. While a bride is being picked for him and transported back to Isaac, Isaac is doing what the psalmist would say, where in the middle of emotional pain, confusion, anger, whatever's going on, that is to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord, because things do not make sense immediately. After time, they will. But in that moments of those times where we are under burden, we wait upon the Lord. We position ourselves under the waterfall of grace. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles and they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Verse 64 through verse, verse 66, I call this the hallmark moment. I don't like romantic movies. If you do, good for you. I don't. I make fun of them. And Becca hates watching them with me. But if you do, this is your moment. Verses, uh, once again, verse uh, 64. Um, and Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. It's like that moment the two lovers see each other. They get off their thing. And they're like, oh, love at first sight. I don't even know who it is, but maybe. Anyway, verse 60, 65. And she and said to the servant, this is the unnamed servant, probably Eleazar, who is that man walking the field to meet us? If this, was, if this was translated into like the Old West, she'd probably say, hey, who's that tall drink of water? <laughs> the Hallmark scene continues right here. She's like, who's that tall drink of water? And of course, we have the servant says, it is my master. I have to imagine the servant right now. He's almost like fainting from the providence of God right now. Because <laughs> this would be pretty awkward if that was not, if it wasn't Isaac. And she's like, who's that? He's like, that's just some field hand. Don't worry about him. <laughs> Isaac's in the shed. He's like, you know, 700 pounds. And like, but no, that's not the case at all. <laughs> Isaac probably was a handsome guy. The Bible really doesn't tell us, except for a couple exceptions, about the beauty of men. It's really about the beauty of women. Um, he probably was a handsome dude. How do we know this? Because we know his mother, Sarah. And Sarah was so beautiful that in her 90s and 100s, people were still like chasing after her. Um, the Talmud, it's a collection of the writings of certain rabbis. Um, they said that she was, as, she was as beautiful as Eve. And they say Eve had one third of the beauty of women. So if Eve had one third of the beauty of womankind, if Sarah had another third then the rest of you are working with, I'm just going to move on. Um, in verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all these things that had, that had been done. Thank you, Jesus. He didn't decide to recap it all for us in the middle of that verse too. A lot happens in that one verse. It's a recapping of all the things that happened after this, or else this chapter probably would be like 150 verses long. Um, in verse 67, here we come down to it. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. One of the names of the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Dear one, are you broken in spirit? The Holy Spirit wants to comfort you. Is God concerned with all of redemption history and his plan for the cosmos? Yes, 
and he desperately is concerned after you as well. He cares for you personally. He cares how you're feeling. See here, Rebecca comes to Isaac and he is comforted. He loves her and promise and providence and the personal nature of God reigns. In chapter 24, this is a recap of all of chapter 24. Here's what we see so very clearly. Man's choice, humanity's choice and God's sovereignty. This is one of the things that, you know, philosophers throughout all the nations, we wonder about, okay, how much is God's sovereignty? How much is my choice? I think it always comes down to this. I don't care what you call yourself. God is completely sovereign and you are completely responsible for what you do. We do the what ifs, the what ifs don't matter. What happens is what happens. You are completely responsible for what you do and God is completely sovereign over everything that happens. Here's the challenge, dear bride of Christ. The bridegroom is here today. Are you being asked to move? Have you become stagnant? Have you just been doing the same things over and over again, wondering why things don't change? Maybe the bridegroom and the love of the bridegroom, the initiating love of Christ is telling you, get up and move. I don't mean physically. Please don't move away. I love each and every one of you, and I don't know what I'd do if you're gone. But... uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. If that's where God's doing, yeah, absolutely. I'm behind you. I love you that much that I, I will send you away with my, with my sincerest salutations. But what I'm talking about, no more spiritually, do you need to move? Have you been holding on to bitterness too long? Have you been holding on to unforgiveness too long? Have you been holding on to fear too long? And God's telling you, get up and move. Move somewhere, move across the street and talk to that neighbor that keeps mowing the grass wrong. That's probably what my neighbors feel like because I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Maybe talk to, it's Father's Day. Maybe some people need to call their father and tell them, make things right. Maybe God wants you to go on a short-term missions trip. We got three who are going to be going in a couple weeks. Maybe God, when when you're going to work tomorrow or later today, to let something go that you're holding on to and forgive the person and share the heart of Christ too. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you to change. Well, he is, of course. I say maybe, he absolutely is. That's what sanctification is. We're continually changing. We're continually being made into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, Michelangelo, um, he was asked one time, how do you make, how do you start with this block of granite and how do you make it into uh, this beautiful horse? And he says, it's easy. I just take away everything that doesn't look like a horse. That's amazing considering he's a ninja turtle. Um, <laughs> I love that joke and I'm never not going to use it. Um, the Holy Spirit is, t- is causing us to change. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do you see this in your life? Is this growing in your life? If it's not, it's because you've been putting a block on it. It's because you've been shutting down. It's because you've been listening to things that you shouldn't be listening to. Or it's just because just at a stage in your life where the Holy Spirit's working on you and the fruit is about to come in and enforce. Like bamboo. Bamboo stays small for so many years and all of a sudden it grows in all one. The Holy Spirit it does want you to change. The initiating love of Christ wants to. 
And then, dear beloved, are you broken in spirit? Are you broken in heart? He wants to comfort you today because he is the comforter. Worship team, would you come up at this time? It is very fitting that the Holy Spirit prompts the writers of the scriptures to use the, metaphor, the marriage metaphor. Because that is how Christ feels towards us as the, as the bridegroom and we are the bride. And the love of Christ does such amazing things. It moves us, it changes, it comforts us. As we go over this last song, it's our, it's our opportunity to respond to the message. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching online. And you're like, Pastor Jason, I don't, I don't even have a relationship with God today. Like I go to church and I, I, I tuned in today, but I don't know Jesus like you're talking about. Like a bridegroom and a bride, I don't have that intimate relationship. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. The bridegroom is calling. The comforter has come and he is speaking to you right now, the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven. And he's speaking to you right now to come to faith in Jesus Christ.